Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. If you need some new earbuds or some new headphones, just go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L, and get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. Earbuds, headphones, multiple colors, multiple styles, state of the art, tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code O T H E R P P L. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is nominally about writing. This is over here in the desert. How's it going out there? How are you doing today? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I appreciate you tuning in. I have a great show for you today. My guest is Nick Kelman, author and screenwriter. He has a new novel out from Dark Horse. It's called How to Pass as Human. It's about an android, and uh, Nick and I will be discussing that and a bunch of other stuff in just a moment. Uh, I hope you guys had a nice Thanksgiving, my American listeners, or uh, my Americans listening abroad who might have celebrated in a foreign land. I hope the holiday wasn't too emotionally taxing or uh, logistically complicated. Mine was uh, relatively easy. I stayed here in Southern California. We have a new baby, so we're not going anywhere, if I have anything to say about it. I typically try very hard to avoid traveling during the holidays anyway. But the baby gives us a good excuse to not have to deal. And don't get me wrong, I love to travel. It's probably my favorite thing to do. I just don't want to do it when everyone else is doing it. And uh, <laughs> as I say this, like literally as I said that, my wife was texting me. I'm looking down at my phone right now, which is next to my computer. And uh, my wife is texting me and she says, quote, Evan that's our daughter, was interviewed for the school newsletter today. That's her preschool. She's got a newsletter at her preschool. She was asked what her favorite thing to do with her family is, and she said, go on trips. Quote, the last trip I went on was to Ojai, and I hugged a big tree. Holy Jesus. She's a tree hugger. How sweet is that? Uh, and uh, I'm feeling bad because that trip to Ojai was a depressingly long time ago. <laughs> it's like a year and a half ago. I'm failing as a parent. I never take my daughter anywhere. She rarely escapes from the suffocating, relentless urban chaos of Los Angeles. We give our kids uh, fresh air every couple of years. We give them access to open space on an every other year basis. That's a good plan, right? That's healthy. I want to say we've been other, uh, you know, I think we've been uh, elsewhere since then. I don't think that's the last time we went somewhere. It can't be. Then again, uh, Carrie, my wife, was pregnant all last year. I don't know when the last time we went someplace was. Jesus Christ. I can't remember anything, by the way. I have no idea what's happening in my own life, in case you uh, hadn't noticed by now. It's all just a dream. It's just a blurry, episodic dream. That's how I experience it. This morning, 
uh, I went for a hike, as I sometimes do, uh, up in the Hollywood Hills. I had my son on my chest. I carry him around in one of those baby Bjorns on my chest. And uh, I'll go for walks uh, on occasion in the morning to clear my head, usually uh, after you know very little sleep, or at least a very early wake-up. It's been getting better, but now it's like you know I'm getting up at 3.30 or 4 after a good, solid six-hour stretch, which is not the worst, but it is weird to wake up that early. So I'll go up into the hills to try to kind of get myself going, get my brain functioning. And uh, today I was up there in a bit of a fog, and I was walking uh, on the trail. I was descending, and I was looking at the side of a mountain. I guess it's a mountain, right? Santa Monica Mountains. I'm looking at the side of a mountain, a desert mountain, a dusty, uh, very dry, bush-covered mountain. And uh, I'm looking at it, and I thought to myself, you know, if I was on drugs right now, if I were hallucinating, for example, I think that that this mountain would mean more to me. It would be more magisterial. It would seem more alive. It might look like it's breathing. It would be clear to me that there was a deeper reality underlying the one that I experience on an everyday basis. And so on. I don't know. (laughs) what I was thinking. And and then this happens to me fairly regularly. Uh, and it's not always drug related, but just, you know, drugs are an easy shortcut into a, uh, a recognition and an experiential recognition that things are much weirder and more magnificent than they probably seem. And I find that it can be uh, very easy to lose sight of that. The interconnectedness of things, the vastness of space, the grandeur of nature it can be easy to just overlook it, even when you're in the midst of it. Or at least it's easy for me. So the moral of the story is I need to take my daughter camping. We need to go out into nature. We need to go camping. We need to hug a tree together while there's still time. Uh, I just want to hug a tree in nature with my daughter. I want to get away from the rat race. I want to escape this madness. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Nick Kelman. His new novel, How to Pass as Human, is available now from Dark Horse Comics. Nick is also an accomplished screenwriter who has sold uh, multiple scripts and and or script pitches. He sold a feature script to uh, Steven Spielberg not too long ago, and you're going to hear us talk all about that. So very pleased to have Nick here on the program, and uh, having said that, let's get started. This is Nick Kelman, and his new book is called How to Pass as Human. I was a kid writer who didn't realize that they were a kid writer. I wanted to be a scientist for a long time. And, uh, and then um, in college, when I got to actually start working in a lab, I realized that that little paragraph in the textbook that's like the most amazing thing took somebody like 35 years to figure out. <laughs> and, and by the way, there were like 15 other people that were working on the same thing that got beaten to it by two weeks and had to throw away the previous 35 years. Yeah, so yeah. I was just like, no, this is, I don't have the patience for this. But, but I also realized that what had gotten me interested in science was actually like 
was fiction and and memoir and things like that and i was like oh that's interesting like, like I'm science more, fiction so, some science fiction but actually honestly the thing that really got me into science was uh the james harriet books do you know those they're no. very very popular in the uk i mean they've just been in a thousand different editions but they're the memoirs of a veterinarian in the countryside in england oh. uh and uh okay. uh but um, I just loved those books when I was a child. I just read them over and over and over again. And they inspired me to be a vet, which made me interested in biology, which ended up leading into the sciences. And uh, and then I sort of realized actually what I really liked was the stories and not – I mean I, I'm still fascinated by science, but it was the, the what-if statements as opposed to the uh, – the sitting in the lab and repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again and begging for funding and fighting with everybody else at the university to get your tenure and all that stuff was right. not so exciting. So, um, so I started, so after, after college, I, I decided to do an MFA and, and did that. And okay. Um, but let's, yeah. let's go backwards for a second. You went to MIT. I did. Yeah. So you're a yeah. smart guy. Uh, I mean, uh, you don't go I to don't MIT. Know. You don't go, and you study what, like cognitive and brain behavior? and cognitive science. Yeah. Okay. You don't do that if you don't have a big brain yourself. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to. I never know. People. But I mean, did you did you do really well in school? You must have. I did well in high school. Yeah, and I mean, I actually did well at MIT. But but here's the thing: is like actually, I was doing biology when I first went there, and and having gone to high school in England, you come in with like your whole freshman year of college done, so. Uh, I went in as a sophomore and was doing biology and realized it really like, which was very hard and also realized that I didn't, I knew that wasn't going to be my career, but I was halfway done with college and I was at MIT. I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll switch to something else. And actually at the time, brain and cognitive science was actually the easiest science major because there was very little math. So that was, and it was fascinating so that was why I switched to it. And you so. studied with uh, Noam Chomsky? Uh, I I took a class of his. I wouldn't say I studied with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, Stephen Pinker was my advisor. That's my that's my biggest cognitive, I mean. cognitive science claim to fame. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But uh, but I I honestly I took as many uh, film and media classes as I did. So you knew you knew classes. yeah. Or did you know that you were going to pursue that after you got your undergraduate degree and just finished at MIT? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually there was a period between MIT and grad school when I I um, was, you know, I was writing independent film scripts and like working as a PA in independent film in New York and and. Um, so it started with film. It did start with film. Yeah, and uh, and then I. Uh, Made a short film and which I which I quite like. Shot on film. Shot on film. I mean, I'd... shot on a thirty-five millimeter camera wow. with film. Wow. Yeah, and um, like, could you cut it on like an old movieola or whatever? Or? Actually, no. It was we cut it on Avid. Okay. Um, but that was a whole thing because you had to digitize the film and you had to, you know, then back you had to back match the cut and the whole. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, when I went to film school, we were like splicing film with yeah like, you yeah, know, yeah yeah i mean i yeah i knew how to do that i mean it's um uh yeah it was a different time different so, time but like, kind of a pain in the ass to it, be honest yeah it was a big pain <laughs> in the ass but um but uh i wasn't super psyched about the uh you know you you studying film and media again like another media myth is like the myth of the auteur in film and uh, which, as a working screenwriter, still obviously drives me nuts. Like, I, in the last two years, I noticed that like all the agencies and management companies have started referring to directors as filmmakers. So, like, you have conversations with them as the originator of the idea, as the originator of the characters, as the architect of the the framework of the film. Right. And they're like, "Yeah, we need to get a filmmaker on this when you're done with the script." I'm, and you're like, uh, <laughs> "I'm sorry, but I thought there were probably going to be about three thousand filmmakers involved in this one project." Right. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like, well, no, I had uh, a, I had a conversation somewhat along these lines just the other day where I was talking about. Like the collaborative nature of film and how it feels miraculous that any film ever turns out good because uh, you have that many cooks in the kitchen and that many hands on it. It just seems like it's destined to be a failure. And most films I find – Are failures. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I do. completely and, agree with you. And, but yet, yeah. but yet I, uh, certain directors, not filmmakers, 
uh, certain directors make a lot of great films. They do. And so, but my, you can count them on one hand. Like I yeah. think, like, or, like, or their quality is higher. Like, you and, know. Uh, like anybody batting over two hundred as a director, like I think you can kind of count on one hand. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, it's like it's the Coens, Scorsese, maybe. Although, like, he's maybe. 50-50, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Michael Haneke, I think, is astonishing. But after that, it starts to be like, even Kubrick, it's like you look at his work and it's like, yeah, he made like amazing films, but also some of his films I feel like don't hold up, which I know like in this town you can be hung for. But, no, I, I, but I, I find them, they leave me uh, cold. Very cold, yeah. And like yeah. sometimes, I, mean, I loved Eyes Wide Shut. Nobody loved that movie. Yeah. Like, people thought it was one of his lesser movies. I was like, that was one of my favorites. And I love Path of, uh, Path of Glory. Yeah, Paths yeah. of Glory. Paths of Glory is great, yeah. I thought that was one of maybe yeah. my favorite, you know, those two are like my favorite Kubrick films. Maybe. Yeah. But then you start to talk about like other great directors and it's like, well, they made two or three great movies and like six terrible ones or they just made two or three great movies like the number of people who have made five or six great movies is minuscule mm. so yeah i think those people do have some godlike yeah i guess i was just trying to parse it like who is it you know is it the, i mean because of their directorship they're the ones elevating the project or they have some sort of managerial talent or they have reached a point in their career where they're accomplished enough that they're able to amass the right collaborators around them, you know, the the best yeah. of the best in cinematography and editing and, you know, everything so that they can actually realize their vision, yeah. you know, to a higher, at a higher level. But, but so, but back then, I, you know, I had bought into the auteur theory of filmmaking, you know, thanks, Cahiers du Cinema. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. and, uh, but then when I actually made my own film, finally, from, from beginning to end, I was kind of like, you know what, like you really have, it's much more, being a writer director is much more um, like uh, um, it's it's much more like being a conductor of an orchestra in some ways than than being a writer who creates the whole universe. And so I sort of went back to prose and decided, okay, I'm going to do an MFA and just focus on prose where I can be an egomaniac and just control everything. I mean, I control. You know, people who write books, people who go. I mean, a lot of people I, that I talk with do both. You know, they'll write books. They'll have one that's their primary. Usually it's books on this show, but they'll also do screenwriting. Uh, and I think people who do both and like to write books, like to write books, uh, at least in part because of the level of control that you have, which you have to surrender when you're the screenwriter. Yeah. You're, you're just kind of drafting a blueprint, really, and then you hand it off and other people go and hopefully make it. Yeah, um, yeah. But with, you know, with books, you get to sort of run the whole show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, so that was what led me back to prose. And you went to Brown. I went to Brown for my MFA, yeah. How for, was that? Uh, you know, it was actually, gr it was great, but for reasons that I didn't expect, which which actually was more about the other students than about the professors. Uh, sorry, you met Brown. some good. <laughs> you met <laughs> but, some good friends? Um, I, I made, actually, <laughs> that's also funny. No, I made one good friend and actually had a, pretty uh there was a, a, not a great relationship with anybody else in the program oh it's a very small program but like but but still managed to get great writing feedback from those people possibly because there was some antagonism um was it competitive and did you feel like an intensity? it was com it was competitive but also it's it's somewhat i mean at least when i was there i don't know maybe it's changed it's somewhat of an experimental writing program and my writing is much more mainstream and so i was kind of like the guy who wanted to write books that that pretty much anybody could read See, yeah but that guy and that guy in an avant-garde literary mfa program is always going to be sort of the persona non grata right yes exactly so i was a little ostracized and i mean i don't know i mean it, it uh but um uh any like but, ho any hostile it, workshopping was there oh yeah very that's what i mean but yeah. i think that was really good like i mean like <laughs> one note i got once was uh um, if you ever feel compelled to write a sentence like this again, please drop your pen and run far, far away. I mean, it was that kind of stuff. Damn. Like, and, uh, but, uh, but, but actually great, like great, really improved. Like, honestly, that criticism really improved my writing. Like, I'm very grateful to those people for making me improve my writing. Yeah. I think workshops can be too nice. I always went to workshops where I felt like everyone was either, you know, people weren't bringing a lot of energy to the critique. Yeah. And so they would just be like, I love it. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's like useless. A, and, and honestly, like, I can't even imagine what it's like today because, like, it seems like this issue of universities becoming overly politically correct and overly sensitive to nobody being upset. I mean, I can't even imagine. How do you give a critique in a workshop to somebody today? Like, I can't imagine being a writing professor today. I mean, I taught yeah. writing at Brown to undergrads. It's like, I would not want to do that now because how do you tell somebody that, that, that what they wrote is not good? They'll have a meltdown. They'll go to the dean and, yeah. and you'll, you'll be, you know, it's a you'll be in trouble. It's like so uh, – but I think it really prepared me for being a screenwriter. I mean it's like I, I feel like you really – They you know, tear I, it down. You you build it up and then they, you know you send it over and yeah. they just come back with like a million notes and they yeah. sort of pull that thread. Yeah. And it yeah. just crumbles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the whole – yeah. It's like so um, – and it's not like I'm immune. I mean, I still have, but but I'll, I mean, I still when somebody you know you turn in a script and you get those notes and you're like, I still have that day when I read the email or I come back from the meeting and I'm like, God, you can I swear on this? Oh uh, yes, <laughs> like, of course, like, of course. Fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah no. He, he didn't read the goddamn scene. But but like, but I'll tell you what it did teach me to do, which is to not do that in the meeting. Of course not. Which yeah. is essential. You have to have control. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny that you it's funny that you say that. I'm glad you say that because. When you get feedback of any kind, that is that the, the first human response. This thing that you spent all this time constructing. Well, it, it, I think it depends. For me, it actually is when somebody – it's clear somebody did not read the material yeah. closely. Like if somebody read the material and, and has like the worst – like honestly, if somebody read the thing closely and can give a – can clearly express – why they think it's the worst thing ever written. Right. I actually don't have an emotional reaction to that. Like often I'll, I'll be like, oh, well, I, you know, like if I, I'll follow their argument, I'll be like, well, I don't agree. Or, or sometimes I'm like, oh my God, they're totally right. Like this was terrible. I should have done something else. Yeah. It's when they're like, it's, and this happens with screenplays a lot where it's like, I really think, you know, we could use a scene in, in the court. <laughs> like we should see the trial and you have to be there in the meeting and like, be like, okay, so could you just – like if we look at page 60, there's like a five-page trial scene. So could you just tell me like what wasn't conveyed there that was clear? Right. I mean it, sa it says interior, courtroom. <laughs> like, you know, it's like – it's those notes that make you want to, yeah. you know. Well, I always say uh, when I was teaching uh, creative writing that like if you give a note, you should be able to justify uh, why. And if you can do an eloquent job of justifying why, it's typically a good note. And if you can't – then it's not a note worth taking. You yeah. Know, it's like, I always find that like when I'm receiving notes, like really good notes are sort of self-evident. Like you hear it and you go, Oh, like why yes. didn't I, yeah. why didn't I see that? Like, I can't believe I yeah. missed it. And you're sort of grateful that they saved you. Uh, well, the other thing is too, is like, I've always found that you never get away with anything. Like if you have a note on your own work, when you hand it to somebody to read, it's going to be the first note you get back. Yeah. Like if you're like, I don't know if that character's working, but but maybe I got away with it. And then you give it to somebody like, you know, the first thing I got to say is that character's not working. I'm like, ah, God, I, right, I know. Right. It's like anything that you know you have to fix. Yes. So uh, let's talk about screenwriting a little bit. Like how did you – I mean you started there and then you did the writer-director thing and then you said you wanted to go back to prose. And did that mean going back to screenwriting exclusively or did that mean you started to write – uh, girls or like like trace it for me a little no you, no you got so, your MFA yeah so I did the MFA so no so uh, girls was was like seventy five percent my thesis and then needed to be a little longer so I added to it and it ended up becoming my first novel uh, which and, you sold out of uh, school like you no actually no it took me a couple more years a couple more years and a couple of agents and again like not to give the bullshit version of like oh I submitted it 40 places and and then somebody just saw the genius of it like what actually happened was my girlfriend at the time went to see a doctor about a problem she was having with her neck and I went with her and the guy was this like pop like just this genius multi disciplined guy like was all over the place and was like and what do you do and i'm like oh i'm a writer and he's like oh have you, have you written anything that i've written i was like well no i've been you know i haven't published anything yet and he's like well do you have anything i could read and i was like well sure you can read read this if you want and he was like i'd love to so i was like all right dude <laughs> Who so is I, this guy um uh uh <laughs> Let's, let's list this phone number. Lauren, for Lauren Fishman. <laughs> I've, and Anyone's like, looking honestly, for a reader. But I'll tell you something. Everything I have today as a writer, I have because of Lauren Fishman. Because he, he read the manuscript and was – and like 
called me up and was like, I love this. Can I show it to a friend of mine who's a poet? I was like, yeah, whatever. Sure, sure. So he showed it to this guy and the guy was like and, – and then the guy didn't read it. And he bumped into him – here's how long ago this was – in a Blockbuster video store Whoa. like a month later and was like – happened to say to him, did you read that guy's book that I sent you? And he was like, oh, no. But you know what? Send it to my friend who's an editor. Tell him to send it to my friend who's an editor at Little Brown. He can use my name. So I was like, okay. So I sent it to this 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 editor at Little Brown and thinking I'd never hear from her. And like she called me up like a week later and was like, we'd like to publish your book. So like – so that's how that happened. Damn. So that's worth knowing. So <laughs> honestly, yeah, but I, but it is worth knowing. And I feel, but I feel like once you get inside the industry, whether it's film or fiction, like I honestly, like most, a, a lot of stories are like that. It's yeah. either stories about people getting their first book published or the first, you know, film, like the first book published is often like either they were a journalist for years and know everybody right. already right. through journalism or it's, some dumb piece of luck like that. I mean, and it just takes one. Yeah, it does. Well, that's the flip side to it, which is that you can sit around and be angry that you don't have the luck, but honestly, you've got to sit there and have the work ready for when the piece of luck comes along. Right. And you, you know, and like you, what is it? You know, you showed up, you, the guy asked you for, if you had anything for him to read, you sent it to him. Uh, you sent it to the poet, you sent it to the editor. Yeah. I mean, not that this is any great, I mean, you just had to hit send, or I guess maybe back in those days, were you, were you mailing manuscripts? I think I might have been mailing manuscripts. Either way, yeah. you took even better though. You took the time to do it. Some people would flake on that. Some people would be like, "Ah, fuck it," like I'm not going to send it to some poet, or you know what I'm saying? Like you, you did those things. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess so. I, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I did do those things. I, I mean, maybe somebody would have a novel finished. That they wouldn't bother to send to somebody, but but uh, I guess if they said I have a friend who's an editor at Little Brown, most people would be like, "All right, I'll yeah, send it over. I'll see what happens." Roll I mean, dice. it's not like I thought something was going to happen. Yeah, but but you gotta you gotta. T- but the point is, is like I had the book finished right uh, when that happened, and so you must have been thrilled. Oh and, yeah, and shocked. <laughs> Both, yes, yeah. Uh, and then it went on to sell in fourteen countries or whatever, yeah. and you know that's yeah. a pretty good debut. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, I mean, um, yeah, I'm very proud of that book. How did your friends in uh, Brown's writing workshop feel about that? Uh, did you I get don't, any feedback? I don't even know, actually. I mean, my my my, I made one very good friend who I'm still who close is it? Let's give a shout out to your good friend. <laughs> it's Jim Higdon. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he was in the poetry program at the same time, and uh, he's now a journalist and nonfiction writer, and um, but uh, uh, so you didn't get a lot of you didn't hear. I no, I didn't. I didn't hear. I'm not really in touch with. Did you get like people. Facebook? I guess this was pre Facebook. Even you weren't getting like Facebook likes. And it was like pre. It was pre Facebook. Oh. It was yeah. Pre MySpace, even. Whoa. It was Friendsterish. Friends- it was that period. <laughs> I think was that pre MySpace. I think it was yes, right. It was, was Friendster, then MySpace, then Facebook. I, I think, think so. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, take me to. Um, you've written a screenplay for Steven Spielberg. You sold a, a, a script to DreamWorks. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I yep. want to get there, and then I want to get to Androids. Okay. And I want to get to your – it's not a graphic novel. It's not a comic book. Right. I want to talk about the space that it occupies okay. you know, genre-wise. Great. So let's do screenwriting first. So so, so I wrote Girls. It did, you know, as well as could be reasonably expected for a small literary fiction novel. And I realized very quickly that I was never going to be able to pay the bills writing small literary fiction novels yeah. every year, yeah. even every year that would get published. So um, isn't that crazy? You could write and publish one book a year. Yeah, and you'd still have to teach or do other writing work. And, yeah. You know, scrape. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and did I actually just say very quickly? Because actually, it took me ten years to figure that out. Because I wrote. I was going to say I ju- yeah. I'm just figuring that yeah. out. I'm- no, so I I wrote um, the French publisher of Girls was was Asseline. Which uh, is like the French Taschen, but right. they wanted to start publishing novels, so they published Girls in French. And I met the publisher, and she asked me if I had ideas for other books, and they're primarily an art publisher. And I said to her, I was like, you know, nobody has done an art history of video games, and it's crazy because people need to sit up and notice that video games are an art form. This was 2005. Uh, and so that was my next book, Video Game Art. That's a great idea. It was a little ahead of its time. I mean, I'm still bitter about the fact that the book came out and and MoMA, who 
stocks a lot of Asseline's books because they're art books. The MoMA bookstore wouldn't stock video game art because beneath, yeah. because because video games aren't art. And now they have a permanent video game exhibition. <laughs> it's <Right>. like <laughs> well, but, call up your editor and see if they can get that thing in there. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure there are copies still around, but um, but anyway, that was a cool book and um, a lot of fun. And then I worked on another novel, which took me a couple of years and was long and dark and depressing. And uh, uh, I love those books. And nobody wanted to publish it in the U.S. It was published in Europe. What um, did you? How did you respond to that? Where did you get depressed? Well, so uh, yeah, of course. But but what I also did was say, you know what? Uh, I want to be able to pay my bills writing. I, I had co-founded a teaching company in new york at the time and was working with with both gifted and learning disabled students in like this private one-on-one program and like um uh and i was just like i really want to you know i want to get to a place where i'm paying the bills writing and the only way that is ever going to happen really is through film or television so uh so i spent a couple years working on a sci-fi spec and I'd always been a big sci-fi fan and had what I thought was a good idea. And, um, can you uh, tell us about it or what it is? Or? You know, it's still, it's still technically under wraps, but it's about, it's an art, like almost everything I write is like about artificial intelligence or robots or, uh, it's sort of, you know, it goes back a little bit to the brain and cognitive science. I was going to say that so, there's crossover, yeah. there's overlap between your MIT Yeah, I mean, the, the and, idea of the brain and the self and the, and the boundaries between the mechanics of, of, who we are and who we are is just endlessly fascinating to me still. So, so it was that, and it was, it was an idea that, uh, you know, hadn't been done before a high concept thing and big budget thing. And, um, and I was working on it for a couple of years and I started working on another novel because why not? Yeah. And I went, that was more commercial, still a literary fiction, but, but like had the potential to be one of those things that maybe would catch on. And, uh, and I went to go see my literary agent about it and and was walking out the – literally on the way out. I was out walking out the door and did Tell me you saw that doctor again. And you're like, I have a script. No, <laughs> no, but – no, no. But I, I did a Columbo on the way out the door. I was like, oh, there's just one more thing. I have this script sitting in a drawer. I think it might be kind of good. Like is there somebody you know that I could send it to? And she said – she was like, oh, send it to my book-to-film partner who's an agent at CAA. And, uh, you know, he'll like send it to him, tell him I told you to send it to him. So I was like, okay, it's a similar story. Actually, I was like, okay, great. So I sent him the script, expected to never hear from him. This was the beginning of December, uh, in 2009. And, uh, and then I, he called me up like a week later and was like, you know, I think I might be able to sell this. Like, would you be fine with me trying to do that? I was like, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Knock yourself out. Yeah. Right. Buddy. <laughs> Whatever you say. And he was like, okay, well, look, it's, it's almost, it's almost the holidays. The whole town shuts down. I won't do anything until the first week of January. I was like, okay, great. Thanks. You know, never expect to hear from him again. He called me up like the third of January, which was a Thursday or maybe it was the fourth, but it was like the first Thursday in January. And was like, so I, I started to you know, make calls about your script last night. And he's like, I didn't get a hold of, it, of anyone at first, but Steven Spielberg happened to be home last night with nothing to read. And he, <laughs> and he read your script and wants to buy it. No and I was shit. like, are you like, I, I mean, I thought it was a prank, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but it wasn't. Um, and, um, so that was cool. Damn. Did you get to meet Steven Spielberg? Yeah. 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 And you sat gave, with him and gave me notes and yeah. How was, how, was once. how was he? He was the... super cool, man. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that because he could crush me like a bug. Right. He was actually super cool. Yeah. I've sort of heard that. Yeah. You know? and really I... nice and smart and obviously had great notes. And like, yeah, it was really one of the best meetings I've had in town. Wow. Yeah. Well, and they say uh, like, you know, like there's some, I've heard it said before that like people who are like, like the higher up the food chain you go, like the better the people often are. I don't think it's like a hard, fast rule. But there's a reason why he's like he is where he is. I don't know. I, I, I agree with that. I think it's very complicated in any industry, but but like I can certainly only speak to it for the entertainment industry. Where the problem is, first of all, you get treated like garbage so much here unless you are unless you do have any power. So that's tough for a long time that you keep getting beaten up. Right. Then if you do actually manage to fight your way through that to the point where you have any kind of power in the business, everybody starts asking you for stuff. Everybody. Everyone. And so 
you have to start saying no to a lot of people because most of what most people produce is garbage. So then all those people turn around and start saying you're an asshole because you wouldn't make their movie or wouldn't put you in their movie or wouldn't read your script or whatever it is. And so I th- I think that's very true. That's I think a very a lot intelligent. Of these, that's a very intelligent assessment. I've I, I've never heard it said quite that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like I mean, uh, like the people that I've met that are at the top, top, top of the industry have all been very nice and very smart. And like that's not the repu- like when you think of the big Hollywood director or big Hollywood producer you th- or actor, you think of like the cliche is that they're a moronic asshole and it's just not true. But I think it's because so many people are out there in the world saying that moronic asshole didn't see the genius of my script when in fact, it's just like, no dude, like it wasn't good. Well, and it's just like in this, I mean, I know it's it's probably in some way similar to any business, but in Hollywood in particular, like the, the, the path up the mountain, you have to go through so much shit. Yeah. And if you're an asshole, uh, I know there are assholes who quote unquote succeed and you know, they, I think it depends which part of the business you're in. Yeah. I think being, uh, I think if you're a lawyer or an agent being a, let's say business minded individual, a, t- a tough personality is, <laughs> yeah, is, is probably to your advantage. But I think you're right. I think a lot of people, if they're lucky enough to reach that level of the business, a lot of people then like implode because they are assholes. I don't think you can actually be in a huge asshole and continue to be super successful in this business. Right? Well, I mean, I guess the only thing I could think of psychologically that might play out is where, you know, you like you say, you take a lot of abuse on your way up where you get, you know, smacked around and treated like shit. And then finally you, you get some power and it's like the abused syndrome. Where totally. Like, yeah. It's like a bull. Yeah. Like you're, you're now the one who gets to be the bully. bully. Yeah. But, I, but it's also more complicated than that too. Look, we both know how incredibly, I mean, you said it yourself, it's miraculous that a film gets finished let alone that it's watchable. Right. And and it's so there's so many things that can go wrong. It's so difficult that I also think a lot of directors and producers get reputations for being assholes because they're just super focused on the work and there's zero tolerance for screwing up. Like the fact is is like like I'm sorry, like if you're spending a million dollars a day shooting a movie and you're the whatever the costume designer and you have the wrong costumes there that day, like you're going to get fired. Like it's too expensive, right. you know? Right. And, like that's not somebody being an asshole. It's like time is it's money. Just really, there's no tolerance for failure. Yeah. So now, unfortunately, somebody there is a human face to that decision, right? That then ends up getting called an asshole. But you know, that's the price. Of, that's the price that, of being at the top, I guess. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, like, look in this business. Who like? That's the. I mean, again, seems to be a theme today. I don't know why I'm on the soapbox about this, but like, but the 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 illusion. You know, the number of people that uh, – it's like I think 250,000 people or something uh, like call themselves writers in L.A. Is that Or, or come <laughs> to L.A. to be writers every year? I can't believe that. No, that's possible I guess because greater L.A. is what, like 22 million people? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I might have heard that every year 250,000 people come to L.A. to be writers. And like – but the fact is, is, is like there were – Last year, what is this, 2015, I think in 2014, there were, the the Writers Guild, I think has 1,600 people on the books as being paid to write a movie by a guild signatory. So, like, Not great math, not no, great odds. No, and look, I've also been to meetings where we've been talking about potential casting for a pitch and the executive studio executive has been like well who can we put in this and and like this actually happened to me they pulled out an index card an index card that had handwritten on one side all the male stars that they would consider putting in something and on the other side all the female stars like on one index card on one card so if you're coming to town to be an actor like you're coming to town to be one of 15 people right who can are, actually theoretically move the needle yes. and generate box office. Yes. But even yeah. that seems like fleeting. Yeah. You know, like Will Smith's movies are tanking Totally. Hey, uh, you, have you read Adventures in the Screen Trade? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's one of the things that he spends a whole chapter on is, like, if you have a five-year run at the top in this business, that's – you're in the 99.9999th percentile of people right. who have been at the top of the business, which is also a very small number of people, right? And then to have, like, a sustained run, like yeah. a Spielberg career. Spielberg, out of Clint control. Eastwood. Yes. Uh, like, there are very few people. Do you have any theories on how somebody does make vital art well into their old age? Like, you know, because I feel like I was, I was thinking about this relative to music, like rock and roll music. Where it's like, whatever happened to these guys? Like they did, yeah. they have like a. It's funny. Like, I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday about music and and why, 
it does seem like a five more, or ten year window. It, but it does seem like for music, it's more than other art forms. People do better in their youth, yeah. and then and then they get comfortable, and then the art dies. Whereas, I mean, I don't know. May, <laughs> actually, it's just a revelation, which is maybe that for writers and painters and musician and classical musician, whatever it is, like you never actually reach that place of financial stability. So <laughs> maybe that's the problem. <laughs> actually, now that I think about it, that might be the, that maybe that's it. But yeah, but Spielberg, I mean, Clint Eastwood, who's in his eighties, like yeah. he's making films that are um, really interesting. And uh, I don't know. I, like, I wonder how they do it. Maybe it's just, a, uh, is it a matter of talent? Is it a matter? I guess my theory would be that it's a matter of input. Like they keep, they love film. They keep watching. They yeah. keep paying attention. I feel like a lot of people Look, maybe I think lose just, that thread. Yeah, I don't know. I, there's so many things involved. I mean, like, in, they're enormously talented, first of all. Second of all, they managed, they had an enormous amount of luck. I mean, you read the story about Jaws. It's like, it is so lucky that he ever made another movie. Yeah. You know, like, when you hear Why about, was it? A, it was just a disastrous it's production. Enormously over budget oh, okay. and over time, and like so many. I mean, it's a miracle the movie got finished, released, let alone became Jaws. Like, I mean, it's a so great movie. It is a great, great movie. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So talent, huge amount of luck. Then also like the personality. I think to not implode at that level. Like all of a sudden you have the money and and like, you know. Uh, everybody's worship you know everybody worships you everybody will do anything you want like to keep your head level yeah is requires a specific personality i mean i think it's just a very you know um it's just a very small number of people i mean i'm sure and and i think it's different for different art forms i mean the more that i've gotten into screenwriting the more i realize how utterly impossible it is to write one good screenplay i mean the, the screenplay forum is so precise out of you know by necessity and it's funny coming from literary fiction because it's something that like i feel like literary writers are often like oh the hollywood movie and the formula and i'm and i'm like yeah but let me tell me your three favorite movies and then they go through these art you know quote-unquote art movies or farm movies and i'm like okay here's where those beats still fall yeah like the movies that you like still have those beats that's right you know it's like and they're still the same length and like everything that a hollywood movie is doing with some guy in a superhero costume a good one like a good superhero movie is actually the same as like that French art movie you like about the divorce. Right. Like, but it's just, you know, like the events are different, but the beats are the same. Or and they're, or they're like subverting genre or, you know, putting some sort of weird, I mean, people can deconstruct, like someone who's really talented, I think can play with it, but you're still confined by the form. Yeah. And, and, the, and so finding the right story and then getting it in that form and, and all of the things that go into it, it's so difficult. I think that like, it's interesting to me when you really start to go through the screenwriters, you go through IMDb and look at Academy Award winning screenwriters or or just your favorite screenwriters, like they actually I feel like have the lowest track record of writing like the number of people that have written four great movies is almost zero. Yeah. You know? And uh so I think the other thing is it's just also for film, I think it's just really hard. So somebody, you know, can make one great movie and then maybe never make another one. I'd be content to make one hard. great movie yeah, or well, write one great novel. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's because that's we're in our 40s. <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> so, <laughs> the clock is ticking. That's right. So uh, <laughs> let me uh, let me ask you two questions. Me too. Yeah. First of all, the, the script that you sold to Spielberg is called what? It's called Generis. Okay, so in Generis, do we know where is it in development? Is that what's happening with it? Right I'm now? not sure it is anymore. Actually, I mean, I did some drafts on it, and I think they may have had somebody else do some rounds, and I don't know. You, you know, don't know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, DreamWorks is a complicated place these days. Sure. Um, and and from what I understand, uh, with uh, Stephen's own personal projects, like he has. 10 or 15 things at any one time that he juggles and thinks about and puts away and brings out. So who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. It's always a long process. Yeah. So um, you talked earlier about, you know, when you were talking about how, you know, you, if you have success in this business, suddenly everyone wants something from you. Yeah. Did that happen? Has that happened to you no. any, on any level since no. you've been? No, I'm not successful enough. For that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, only... Th I mean, technically, yes, I suppose so. Like, I, like two people have said hey can you put me in touch with your agent you sure. know and i've had to be like uh, no because but 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 actually for the reverse thing not because 
like I can do, but because like if I can get a favor from my agent, yeah, it's, right. it's like a good thing. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like I don't want to use up my own favors right. on some guy that you know I, I haven't spoken to for fifteen years who suddenly wants from a, that brown MFA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So and okay, and then like I mean, so that aside, uh, you bring up this thing where people are asking favors of you, and it's an interesting position to be in. I think we all maybe hope to be in that position in a weird way. But I'm fascinated by people who have social grace and sort of know how to handle that. I think some people might put up a wall and say, fuck you all. I'm not dealing with it. I think other people might be like people pleaser and want to try to accommodate everyone and wind up driving themselves crazy. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, you ever thought about that? Or do you have you seen people who are in that position and maybe had the chance to witness them uh, handle it? I don't know why that fascinates me. Uh, can you, sorry, can you clarify? I wasn't. Can you I, clarify the question? The question is like, I, I guess, like, how do you handle that? I mean, because it's a tough. It's a tough. How spot do you handle to, success? Yeah, it's yeah. a tough spot to yeah. be in where everyone's trying to like no, you know, be I, like, hey, I, I, I need a. I, I completely need this. agree, but also, I mean, for me, it's theoretical. But yeah, but like, but uh, um, but when you when you see. I mean, particularly for, um, I mean, I think it's easier for screenwriters. It's like that, th- there's, I don't know if you're a 30 Rock fan, but there's a great joke at 30 Rock where they're talking about a, a movie that they're going to make about something, and Tina Fey is like, and we'll get Steven Spielberg to direct it, and we'll get Tom Cruise to star in it, and we'll get the most famous screenwriter in Hollywood to write it, whoever that is. Yeah, <laughs> like, <it's> like, right. <laughs> yeah exactly. And so, um, so I'm not sure that ever happens. But like, but I think, yeah, if you're an actor or a director, and all of a sudden everybody's just throwing themselves at you, and you have money, and, and that's like, these I don't guys, know. That's why all these guys are hooking up with the nanny, because they live these. I mean, wouldn't you? Would you ever deal with people if everyone was constantly like, "Hey, yeah. I need a favor. Hey, yeah, I need a favor. Yeah. Hey, can I get a picture? Hey, can yeah, I do this? totally? Yeah. You and like, you don't know who your friends are, and right? Kind of, yeah. But the nanny's there, and yeah. you know you're lonely. Yeah. Not not to defend <laughs> fucking the nanny. <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna start. Do you have a nanny? <laughs> Where are you going with this exactly? <laughs> I was just trying to... And the nanny's name is always June, and she's about 23 years old. (laughs) Well, by the way, some of these nannies are attractive. It's like, what are you doing with it? I mean, be careful how you're doing this. But here's the thing about the nanny. Uh, (laughs) Yes, please do do tell me. I have been thinking about this because I'm a big Gwen Stefani fan, as people who listen to this show might know. And I'm like, you know, why, why would you do this to Gwen? She's like, the, you know, she's the most beautiful woman ever. And I haven't been following that gossip, but, yeah. but I guess her husband so, was. Yeah, he was, he, was, he was boning the nanny while okay. she was pregnant, which is a really. Okay. I mean, Horrible. I, assuming it's true. Horrible. Yeah, uh, if it is true. But I was trying to like, I was just trying to humanize it. Like, yeah, he's a, you know, yeah, it's a dick thing to do. Yeah, it's easy to just like call him a monster. But it's like, what's going on? Like, what, why are these guys doing this? Like, it, it's a pattern. Like, Robin Williams married his nanny, Ben Affleck. I mean, like, it's something that happens repeatedly. And. You know, I think the psychology of it is somewhat easy to game out, at least broadly. But the point that I was like ultimately driving at is that I feel like there's a Hollywood movie waiting to be made about a celebrity who has an affair with a nanny. Uh, Isn't that going to happen? Isn't that like that kind of meta story waiting to be told? Well, uh, there's so two things about that. I'm I'm not sure actually in that one case. I think it actually might be a way that like celebrities actually do. You know how the gossip magazines have? They're just like us. I think actually that's they fuck the nanny. <laughs> but yeah, I sort of, I sort of feel like I've heard that story multiple in multiple industries and for centuries. I'm right. not sure that that's necessarily related to being a famous actor. Right. Uh, but uh, and then. The movie question is a tough one because the way the industry is these days, who's going to? What is that movie yeah, like? That's like because there's no, there's that's got to be it's got to be a art Cra- film crowdfunded because yeah no because because it, uh, there's no. It, I'll tell you what that movie is. That's like Ex Wives Club, right? It's or uh, or the the other woman or like because it has to be the female point of view because the only right. empathetic character there is the wife. Right? right, like you immediately hate the nanny and the husband. But I, I was so thinking, there's no way out of that story unless it's unless it's like a f- French art movie where it's like, can you not just understand that <laughs> you know, like we all have needs and we're all in some kind of subtle thing where yeah. like we don't have to like the characters, you know? But like, there's no good ending to that story. That's definitely like a Kickstarter. Yeah, like, like please donate to my Kickstarter for my, <laughs> well, my movie yeah. called He Fucked the Nanny. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> so androids. Yeah. So you Androids. wrote uh, How to Pass as Human. Yes. And it's not. It's a novel. 
It is two. It's two books in one. Two books for the value of one. Hey, folks, um, you heard it here first. Yeah, it's a it's a narrative, but it's also more. It's there's much more, uh, far more pages dedicated to a guide to humanity from a third party perspective. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's called How to Pass as Human. It's uh, an Android's Guide to Assimilation. And so the conceit is – it's actually sort of a found object. Like if you look at the cover, it says by Android Zero on it. Not yeah, really yeah. Like, and um, it, so the idea is, is that I found the manuscript and that it's been written 30 minutes before he believes he's going to die or be deactivated. And he's just trying to record, A, the story of his life, which is only 30 days long, and the mystery of it, who made him and why was he made and all that kind of stuff. And – uh, but also document everything that he's learned about human beings for future androids because it's set it's set today so there's no androids it's like everything is the same it's as our world it's just that he is the first android and so he's writing down everything he's learned about human beings and about how to fit into human society without being detected as an android which was his one that's the one thing he's tasked with when he comes to consciousness is that he has to pass as a human being uh, and if he succeeds in doing so, his creator will reveal himself to him. So, uh, so he's yeah, and things go off the rails, obviously. But but uh, yeah, so the, it's a guidebook to humanity, like somebody in the field, like an anthropologist might write. Okay, so I get that. I get like for, like narratively, I get the conceit. Uh, when you're sitting down to work on this, are you imagining? the illustrations that go along with it you're working with an artist are you sketching them yourself like how do you incorporate all this other stuff so uh y yes uh, <laughs> the answer to all those things is yes i mean the the illustrations for uh um i mean your audience is mostly writers right so a lot of them yeah, yeah. i mean uh you know the the illustrations for the narrative section, we uh, we're thinking ahead to um, to the film adaptation and, and selling the film rights, and so we wanted illustrations in the narrative section that we could uh, honestly like use as like storyboard. storyboards. Yeah. So um, uh, so they were designed. There's one big illustration per chapter, and it's kind of designed as a composite of the events in the chapter. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I was coming up with those and then Dark Horse connected me with an artist. Um, and we, you know, like, I think this is the way it is in comics in general is that, by the way, I was going to be really pissed at you if you graduated from MIT and Brown and can write novels and can write screenplays and were also a very gifted comic artist. That would, no, that would be I a, cannot draw okay, for shit. <laughs> Thank but, you. um, but so you know, so I would write descriptions of them, and and he would draw them. And actually, <laughs> he's in Brazil and speaks Portuguese uh, only. So everything had to go through his agent, who was translating things. And and there was one illustration that we had where it took place. the 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 description was in a underground parking garage, and the character one character is looking out from behind a pillar, and in the distance he sees another character talking to someone in a pool of light and the illustration came back and the two characters in the underground parking garage in the distance were standing in a pool of water <laughs> <laughs> with a light shining on them and i was like uh, a little too literal there yeah, buddy yeah like uh, somebody ran this through google translate <laughs> like, but um so uh and then for the cover the cover i i had an idea for the cover and was and like just described it to Terry Dodson, who's an amazing cover artist, yeah, and like the cool cover, cover is fantastic, and um, and then for the like the production value of this book is extraordinary. Yeah, it's great. It's so. great. I mean, I like, and I can say that because I didn't have anything to do with the production value. Like, it is great. Like, that's Dark Horse doing a great job on that. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and then the the non narrative section, so all the graphs and charts and flow charts and formulas and and all that stuff. The, the same artist did some of the sketches, like there are sketches of like people's emotions and how to understand people's faces. He did those. But the infographics and things, that were all, those were all done by an in-house person at Dark Horse. I, again, like I would write – actually for those, I did s sketches and scanned them and sent them to him. Uh, but they were all just like very simple graphs. You know, like just to show the information, and then he and I spent a long time on the phone or over email talking about, okay, like what can we, how can we make this one more interesting? So it's not just a line right. with two axes and that kind of thing. And uh, 
and you know what are the flow charts going to look like and so, all that kind of stuff. So, so why not just write a screenplay? You have this story. Why do why do this? Uh, well, because um, well, there's multiple answers to that. First of all, the Guide to Humanity section, I just think is a really cool idea for a book, and there's no other way it can exist. Like, it's just, you know, it's uh, it's like a technical manual to humanity, and I think it's really fun, and I'm really proud of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like and, I think um, I think a, a reasonable answer is just because I like it. <laughs> well, well, no, but but it's more com- it's more complex than that. So so because so not only do I like it, but also that portion can exist as a film. Like yeah. it can only exist as a book. And then and then the the narrative section combined with it, uh, you you know the way that things are these days i wanted ownership over the idea so the the other thing is is you know i've i've sold i don't know five six movies in the last five years original ideas and uh and as soon as you sell them that idea is not yours anymore you know it's like you have no rights over it it's the studio owns it and uh it's just not a smart way to be a writer these days you're much better off if you can getting a book published because then somebody buys the rights to the book. You still own the characters. You still, you know, it's like you, you can write another book. JK Rowling just became the first author billionaire. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She owns Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you, you, it's more complex than that because obviously like somebody buys the film rights to the book, they own the film rights. So you can only make money off the books. The theme park. Yeah. I actually, I mean, J.K. Rowling's a special case because I think she renegotiated with them, but I don't think you do get money from the theme park, actually, oh, as the author. Maybe. I, I I'm not story. sure about that. I heard a story uh, in a related, on a related note about the guys who wrote the screenplay for the first Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And when they were writing it, I don't think there were very high hopes for the movie. Like mm-hmm. Pirate movies yeah. were not popular. Yeah. It was just yeah. kind of like, yeah, do this. We'll see. Yeah. And they were able to negotiate, and I, I'm probably missing a ton of details, but they were able to negotiate a contract that gave them a piece of that sort of stuff, merchandise, theme park stuff. I want to say they made an absolute mint. Well, again, maybe it's a special case of them. I mean, what – again, it's, it's more complex than that. Like as the screenwriter, you do technically under the guild contracts, like you, you everybody has a piece of that. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and in the case of the pirates movies, they've made so much money that you, as the screenwriter, you might have seen some money. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah Cause it takes a long time to get that back end if you have it. Like, well, not only a long amount of, of like temporal time, but also like you, it has to be such an enormous amount of money that even right. the studio can't claim that they didn't make any money right. yet. So <laughs> they have a way of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I understand wanting to own intellectual property, or I understand why you would want to write a book uh, preceding scripting it. Creatively, did you find that by doing the book first and by doing all the hard work that writing a book entails? I mean, this is a big this is a big haul to do all of this. Not only the writing, but also the drawing of the charts and doing all the visual stuff and thinking that through. Uh, when you go to script, I don't know if you have yet. Uh, does doing all this foundational work make hopefully putting together a really top-notch screenplay a little bit easier? I would hope. Yeah, totally. I mean, because, you know, screen screenwriting is just, I mean, it's such a freaking cliche, but it is rewriting. I mean, and I've never been a huge rewriter. Like, for certainly with my prose, I would always try to, like, I would rework a chapter and rework it and rework it and rework it before moving on to the next chapter. And then I would do some rewrites when I was done with a book, but, like... But also, I don't know if you know know girls, for example. Like it's it's kind of a structural, so it was sort of easier to do that with something like that. So, and and uh, with screenwriting, one of the biggest it's like uh, one of the biggest lessons I've I wouldn't say lessons, but like like training. It's like boot camp. It's like you you is being able to tear something down and just completely rewrite it quickly is again like talk about all the things you need to be able to do to succeed as a screenwriter like that's a big big part of it do, do you know um 
Thomas Lennon and Ben Grant, like they're the, they're the they created Reno Nine One One, and but they also happen to have written night, all the Night at the Museum movies. Oh, and no. like oh. Anyway, they're really really funny guys, and also like as successful as you can be as screenwriters. Sure. And um uh and uh they had a writing seminar at the WGA, and and they actually they wrote a book, which is one of my favorites, called um. Writing movies for fun and, and profit, and fun is crossed out. I heard that. And I heard of that book. That's that's a. By the way, if you're an aspiring screenwriter, that is a great book because it, most of it is talking about all the things besides screenwriting that you need to know and understand and be good at to succeed. Anyway, one of the things that they they bring up, I think, both in the book but also at the seminar, is how if you can't write a third act in a weekend, you can never be a like one of the top 20 one of the people making money in screenwriting in Hollywood because you have to be able to potentially do that right before production or during production you know it's like there are a lot of people who can write a or there are more people who can write a good first draft but by the time it's gone to the actors and the directors and it needs all those rewrites there's a fewer number of people who can handle all those rewrites and still be the the only credited writer on the movie. But then when it goes into production, it's like a whole different thing. And all of a sudden, all of those uh, forces come into play. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, that location fell through. So now the whole thing has to be rewritten for a hospital instead of for a school. Like, like go. Go. And by the way, we're shooting on Monday, and it's Friday night at midnight. And it's like, so... Um, and uh, Can you and, do that? No. I can't. <laughs> I can't. That's like thirty pages in a weekend. Yeah, that was that's basically what you'd be asking. I mean, somebody. I, I think the third. I think it was. It's interesting that they specify the third act because I think that is by far the like. That is by the time you get to the third act, like you do, sort of know everything that's going to happen, and third acts are more similar than any other, you know, pieces of movies. So, it's interesting that they're specifically the third act. I think I think if you can write a great first act in a weekend, I'm not sure anybody can do that. Yeah. But the third act is it's interesting that there's so I think that does that certainly goes the fastest for me. I mean, I've written third act. I'm not sure how whether they're good or not, but like, but I've written third acts in a week, um, <clears throat> at least physically written. You them. can break into a gallop once you have like a handle on things. Or you yeah. think you have a handle. Well, you on know, things. you know where it's, you know where the you know, car is going at that point. Yeah. Like, so, uh, it's more a question of just getting it down on paper. So did you script, uh, this book yet? No, no, Not no. Yet. We're, we're trying to figure out, uh, exactly what we want to do with it. I mean, I, another thing, uh, I mean, this is, again, I'm not sure if this is more of a, a literary audience or, or an entertainment audience, but like, but, um, I mean, just the way the whole, film and tv industry has shifted in the last five years like everything's about television now yeah like that's where the jobs and the money are and uh so we're thinking about it for tv uh and how to like what is the tv show from it um but also sending it out to directors and you know that kind of thing and see if uh see if we can or or see if we can get somebody interested and then we would probably have a conversation with them about where, I, you know, what I think the movie is, which I have ideas about for sure, but they're going to have their own ideas, so it's better. If to you get the TV show, then you can be the one in charge, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, apart from, you know, the, the exactly network and the, the studio. <laughs> and, the, yeah, yeah. and those 47 and then, people. And, and <laughs> P.S., if you're you or me, probably the showrunner that they bring in to work with you because yes. you've never run a show before. Right. So, and all that good stuff. But eventually, but I mean, if it gets on the air and it's a hit, yeah. you would get the, you'd get yes. the range yes. of your so Eventually, maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know people that have sold their own shows and then been forced out of the show. Well, um, but it, uh, for those people listening, if Nick uh, becomes a huge success, track him down and ask him for favors. And be aware that I will probably say no, <laughs> and it's not because I'm an asshole. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Nick, it's, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for uh, yeah. coming over and doing Thank the show. You very Congratulations much for on the book, and Thank best, you. best of luck on everything. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, that is Nick Kelman. His new novel, How to Pass, is human, is available now from Dark Horse. Nick is also... Uh, an accomplished screenwriter. Keep an eye out for his projects at some point. I feel like they're imminent. Uh, what did I say? How to Pass as Human, available now from Dark Horse. Did I already say that? You can also find Nick online at, Nick, uh, at uh, nkelman.com. nkelman.com. He's on Twitter. The book has a Twitter handle, uh, at How to Pass as Human. 
That's how, and then the number two passes human at how to passes human. There's a Facebook page. There's an Instagram. There's all sorts of things happening for Nick Kelman online. Uh, thank you to Kel Rockstars as always for the good music. Be sure to check out KelRockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. The app is free. The Other People app. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. When you do that, when you get the app on your device, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 for free. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And then uh, if you want to get access to uh, more than just 50 episodes, if you want to get at the deep archives and have them available to you uh, whenever you want, wherever you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, almost 400 episodes and counting. And it's a great way to support this program. Please do that. The Other People app, it's free. Sign up for premium support the show. Yeah, so I need to go on a road trip with my uh, family. I need to pack up the car. I need to do it. You need to have those experiences. I'm failing in that regard. There's a void in my daughter's education. It's my responsibility. I've fucked up. Got to get on a plane. Got to deal with those hassles. Got to embrace those hassles. Go to the airport. Carry the shit. Haul the car seat. A screaming baby. Change his diaper in a lavatory. Size of a fucking broom closet. Or smaller. I feel like maybe I have a bad attitude about this. I feel like uh, Europeans embrace this sort of shit more. Why do I idolize the Europeans? I'm such a liberal. Such a socialist. They just put the kid on their chest. They go to Laos. They stay in a youth hostel. Everything's fine. They speak four languages. They're superior. Please remember that Diego Rivera very rarely bathed and that Michelangelo, Galileo, and Shakespeare were all born in 1564. That's it for now. Thanks to Nick Kelman. Go get How to Pass as Human. Thanks to Dark Horse. Thanks to you guys, most of all, for listening. I sincerely appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this. Did you have an enjoyable time? If I created an enjoyable listening experience, I couldn't have done it without Nick. You guys know that, right? (laughs) 